We're picking back up in our sermon series here in the Gospel of John, and we are in John chapter 5, that printed for us in the bulletin, John chapter 5, 16 through 29. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, He had healed a man, the Jewish leaders began to persecute Him. In His defense, Jesus said to them, My Father is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father and making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that he will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to, all, to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who has sent Him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life, and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to, to live, and those who have done what is evil rise to be condemned. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would give us clarity of understanding and clarity of heart. Reveal the majesty and the grandeur and the beauty of Jesus to us that our hearts might love him all the more that we might cling to him by faith. Pray all this in his name. Amen. So in the, in the 1100s, there was this uh, abbot. An abbot is the head of a monastery who became a very popular teacher. He was a very great speaker. He was a wonderful writer. We actually still have some of his writings. His name was Bernard, which is a great name, uh, of Clairvaux. That's where he was from, Bernard of Clairvaux. And in particular, one of the, the things that has uh, lasted in one of his writings was called The Four Loves. It's this extended reflection on the love of God and how it transforms us and it moves us from selfishness, just love of ourself for ourselves. And it transforms us into loving God and eventually loving ourselves to the glory of God. It's this wonderful reflection. If you ever look it up, it's free online. It's worth reading. Uh, you, know, you don't have to read it in the original Latin. There's translations. Um, but it's very good. It's this incredible reflection uh, on, on the love of God and how it can change us. But there's a paradox in Bernard's life. Because he lived in the middle of the Crusades. And when it was time for the Second Crusade, and the Pope decided we need to invade Jerusalem and we need to take back control of the city from the, the, the Muslim uh, kingdoms there who had taken control, he asked Bernard to basically be the preacher for the Second Crusade. And so this guy who was well known for his speaking, well known for his writing, became the guy who was like kind of in charge of the public relations of the Second Crusade. And I'm not going to quote at length uh, <laughs> uh, 
there's a speech that's given down to us that we can still read uh, that's really terrible. It actually is really, really terrible um, that Bernard spoke trying to convince all these people that following Jesus for them meant joining, the, uh, joining this armed force to go down and to slay thousands and thousands and thousands to take control of the city. But here's part of it. He says, hasten then to ex expiate your sins by victories over the infidels. He says, come on. You can have your sins forgiven by killing these people. And let the deliverance of the holy places be the reward for your repentance. And he said, Cursed be he who does not stain his sword with blood. It's an incredible paradox that a man who could go on uh, to write something like the four loves that reflects so powerfully on the transforming love of God would be the mouthpiece telling people that if they don't stain their sword with blood of these other people, that they are cursed. It's a profound paradox. And it colors our perception of him, at least for me. It kind of guts the power out of some of the stuff he had written, at least for me. Now in our passage, Jesus has already made a big splash. We've walked through the Gospel of John. He's done some remarkable things, and he's kind of become this figurehead. He uh, went into Jerusalem at the first, his first Passover there in his public ministry, and he cleansed the temple, right? That was a big public statement. Now he's healed a man. In the middle of the city in this festival where you know, a couple hundred thousand people have descended on this city of 30,000. Um, so it's crowded and he's healed this man. He's made this big splash. And the religious leaders there, instead of re responding with joy at this healing that has just happened, this man who has dealt with this physical weakness for 38 years, instead of that, they use the Sabbath this gift of God for rest so we don't work ourselves to death. They've used it as a weapon of condemnation against this man. Because they say, how dare you be running around on this Sabbath here in your mat? They use it as a weapon of condemnation against Jesus. Their complaint was that he was undermining the traditions of his people. He was causing chaos. He was causing division. But their accusation isn't simply that they don't like what he's done. Their issue is that they think he's a fraud. They think he's a fraud. So in this passage, Jesus addresses them directly. And he gives a, a peek at who he is. Not just his actions, but who he is. And he does this by detailing his relationship with the Father. And in telling us who he is, we can know that Jesus isn't like Bernard of Clairvaux, who's left some incredible teachings, but when we peek behind the curtain, we see there's some terrible stuff there. No, Jesus shows us who he is in his actions. And when he gives us a peek behind the curtain of who he actually is, it's a profound beauty. It's a profound beauty. So let's talk some about the significant statements. We won't look at every single one in this passage, but Jesus makes some big claims here. And the first thing I want to do is understand the uniqueness of his language about my father. And we pick up here in uh, verse 16. And here in this passage, this is the first direct opposition that Jesus faces in the Gospel of John. Up to now, he's faced questions. There's been people who maybe didn't quite buy in, but they're asking questions. They're trying to understand exactly who he is. But here, he faces direct opposition. He faces persecution, as it says, by the religious leaders. And how does he respond? In verse 17, he says this. 
In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, in our time, it's not uncommon to talk about God as father. It's a pretty common thing. Um, it, not just inside of Christianity, but kind of world religions. It's talk about God as my father. God is the father of us all. But in the time of Jesus' world, this was something that was not done. It was not done. You can look through some of the religious writings from the time, and they might say God is like a father in that he creates all things. But they would never say God is my father. It was a foreign concept. Um, it was a foreign concept. And the way that Jesus describes his relationship to the Father is utterly unique because he's not simply using a metaphor. So if you look through the Old Testament, you'll see a handful of times where God is referenced as a Father, but it's a metaphor. Like it says that, uh, the Old Testament also says that God is like a hen, a mother hen. It also says that God is like a warrior. These are metaphors pointing to something. But Jesus doesn't point to a metaphor. When he says God is my Father, it's like he's using a proper name. He's not saying God is like my Father. He's saying God is my Father. He's not re reaching for an image to kind of describe God. He's pointing to something of essence to who God actually is in His being. Um, and so when Jesus says, My Father has been at His work until this day, and I also am working, the crowd there hears exactly what Jesus is saying. That's why they respond the way they do. Look at verse 18. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill Him, not only because He was breaking the Sabbath in their mind, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so what they heard when God said, he's my father, is Jesus saying, I am the son. God didn't just create me, he begat me. <laughs> we are of the same essence. He didn't mold me like he did the rest of the world. I am the son of the father, making himself, as they said, equal with God. Now, once, a few years ago, I was around an old friend of my dad's, and I sneezed. And there's a handful of things that I've picked up directly from my dad, and one of those is my sneeze. It's a really preposterously loud, demonstrable sneeze. And my dad's friend, wide-eyed, said, I feel like your dad was in the room. My outrageously loud sneeze is one things I got from him, like it was copy and pasted on me. I am my father's son. But notice in this passage that Jesus isn't just saying, I have a handful of characteristics that make me kind of like God. He calls him father and father. He calls him father over and over again. In fact, Jesus, as he's talking about it in this passage, ties himself as closely as he, as he can in identification to the father. All to drive home the point that Jesus is not simply another religious teacher in a long line of religious teachers with some good ideas. That's not who he is. Jesus is God sent from God. Now this is going to stretch our mind because God is a being outside of creation. He's utterly and fundamentally different than us. If there's God and there's a line and there's creation. What Jesus is saying here, I'm not just like on the creation side of things but close to the line. Jesus is saying, I'm on the God side of this line. I'm God sent from God to creation. Scripture recognizes this uniqueness of 
Jesus. Even, even if it's something that's hard for our minds to comprehend and hard for us to describe in the language. If you look in the book of Hebrews, for instance, it calls Jesus the radiance of God's glory. So the idea is here, like God the Father is the Son, and Jesus is the beams emitting from the Son. He's the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of His being. Again, Jesus is not just a really great guy, or even the greatest guy that ever lived. He is God who has taken to Himself a human nature. He's the eternal that has joined to Himself the mortal. It talks about that in Colossians 2. And the significance of that for us is that in Jesus, the immortal taking on the mortal, the mortal, the infinite God, taking on to himself the finite human nature, there joined in Jesus forever is the reconciliation of God and mankind. So he is our representative. And we are joined to God. And that's never to be broken. In Jesus, we, our human nature, is joined to the divine nature of the eternal Son of God. And we are swept up in the life of God. Jesus is not just another religious teacher in a long line of religious teachers. He is God sent from God to reconcile us to God. So, this union of the Father and Jesus, the Son. How does Jesus speak about it in the rest of this passage? Now, I think it will help us to think of it in three different categories, which we've used before. Power, authority, and care. So, let's look at it. Uh, the union of Jesus, God the Father, Power. We see this union in power as Jesus speaks, speaks of what he does. You may have noticed he's talking a lot about action, what the Father does, what the Son does. He's making clear he's not just some new on the scene innovator, that again, he is God sent from God. We can't put a wedge, like the religious leaders were there, between Jesus and the Father. The idea here is as Jesus is walking through, as Jesus is making clear what he values in his actions, as Jesus is bringing grace into this world and telling people to flee from the things that cannot satisfy, this is God in their midst saying this thing. There's a fundamental union in action or, as we said, in power. And this is Jesus telling them that all he has done so far has been the actions of God in their midst. And so... They may have been upset at Jesus cleansing the temple in John chapter 2. They might have said, this crazy guy coming here. How, how dare he come in our place that belongs to us, that we run? How dare he do this? Jesus says, it wasn't just me, some of us start from Galilee that he walked in here. God walked into this temple to cleanse it so that people might come to God. It was God cleansing this temple. Or when Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath, right before this passage that we just read, against their made-up rules about what the Sabbath would be, that was God himself breaking their rules. Now, that wasn't God going back on his establishment of the Sabbath. That was God saying, these man-made traditions are a burden on the shoulders of the people under your care. And Jesus walks in and flounce those rules to show mercy to a man who they had never shown mercy to. Think of that. That man who had uh, been struggling for 38 years with this physical disability was in the shadow of the temple for 38 years. Not cared for. For 38 years. So God himself walks into Jerusalem and walks to that man and heals him and they're angry because he did it against the rules. Jesus is saying, I'm not just some young upstart rabbi from Galilee who has upset you. 
God in the flesh, who has come to show you what actually matters. Whatever accusation you're making against me, you're making against God. So Jesus doesn't simply limit this union to an action of cleansing the temple or even healing. He tells them something incredible. In this passage, he tells them this union of power between him and the Father is going to uh, show itself in even more powerful ways. He talks about bringing life to dead places. It's a power to bring life to dead places. Look at verse 21. It says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. This is like a foreshadowing. In uh, John chapter 11, which we'll get to eventually, I promise, um, Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. After Lazarus has been dead for four days. It's the greatest demonstration of his power, and Jesus is saying, the power that the Father has to bring life to death, the power that the Father has to bring life to dead places is the power that I have as well. And I'll use it. I'm going to use it to bring life, not just physical life. As he says, there's a time coming and uh, is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God rise. When we hear the gospel preached, when we hear the good news of Jesus Christ and we respond in faith, it is God bringing to life the dead places in our hearts. It is God awakening within us something that was dormant that had He not spoken His grace to us. So it's a union power with the Father. There's also a union and authority. Union of authority. It's clear for our passage that Jesus talks about judgment in our passage a lot. You know, it's not uncommon in our world when, the, when we feel the eyes of people falling on, falling on us, we say, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. And sure, that's true. And that's what Jesus is saying. Yes, only God can judge you, and I am God. He's saying my judgment is the Father's judgment. It's intertwined. The Father's judgment is mine, and my judgment is the Father. As I've said, when it comes to speaking about God, uh, I've said this before, Jesus is an insider with insider knowledge. And so when He speaks, He speaks authoritatively about who God is and what He values, because He is God. He can tell us. And so what He says carries an authority that no human teacher could reach. Um, even, like the teach, even Moses, the greatest figures of the Old Testament, when they would speak authoritatively, it was only a little sliver that God had shown them. In Moses' experience, it was only, it sounds crude, it was only God's backside that Moses could testify to. I only saw this little sliver. It wasn't even his face that shined forth in all its glory. And Jesus is saying, no. We talk about Hebrews. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And so when Jesus speaks, when Jesus shows us who God is, we can trust that that's true because he's an insider with insider knowledge. The fullness of God, as we read in Colossians 2, dwelt in Him. And we see it in what He does and what He says. We see it in this authority that He shows when He teaches. So there's a union of power with the Father and with the Son. There's a union of authority, but that alone is not good news. We know too many instances in this world of people who have power and people who have authority, but don't have care. Human history is riddled with tragedy, time after time, people who have power and authority but don't have the character to wield it in the right way. But the good news is, there's a union of character between the Father and the Son. What does Jesus do with His power and authority? What does Jesus do with His power and authority? 
We talked about this way back in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, when he turns the water into wine to not just save a party, but he gives incredible grace. He gives uh, and it's incredibly um, uh, uh, um, valuable wedding gift to this young couple who would have been shamed otherwise. That's what Jesus does. And he does that in secret, oddly enough. What does Jesus do with his power and authority? He goes into the temple and he cleanses it, not just to make a scene, but so that the poor can come and worship God without having people rip them off to come in the door. What does he do with his power and authority? He tells the, uh, the, the self-righteous and high on his own uh, ideas about who he is, uh, Nicodemus, that you got to be born again, but you can't carry your status in what does he do with his power of authority? He goes to a Samaritan woman, lonely in her shame, alone in the middle of the heat of the day, so that no one would shame her in conversation. He goes to her and gives her place. This is what our God does with his power and authority. It shows us exactly who he is. What does Jesus do? And he tells us here what he's going to do as well. Not just what he's already done. What does he do with his power and authority? What does he do with his power over life and death? When it says that the Father has entrusted judgment to him, well, i got to be honest. If, if judgment was entrusted to me, I hate to think what I'd do, to, do with it. I hate to think what I would do with it if all judgment had been entrusted. I would make an absolute mess of things. Um, comically, if you've ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty, it's kind of a good movie. Uh, Jim Carrey gets the power of being God. He thinks he can handle it. He makes an absolute mess of the entire world, <laughs> just about, because he was given power and authority for this limited time, but he didn't have the character to do it. But look what uh, Jesus says. Look at verse 24 and 25. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death into life. Verse 25, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. He's been entrusted all judgment. And he says right here, he says right here, you don't have to do a bunch of good deeds to prove yourself. He says, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me has eternal life and will not be judged. The one with power to give life and authority to judge uses that power to bring us to life. Apart from any good works we can do. power and authority of God is used to bring us to life, to free us from the judgment that our sin would earn. The God who could do anything He wanted lets His voice resound to call us from the grave. The union of the Father and the Son is a profound one, and that's what Jesus says in verse 20, pointing to an incredible reality that the eternal God is one whose very essence is an eternal love. He says it there that the Father loves the Son. And, should, and, and before we move on from this incredible statement, think about what he's saying. The baseline reality and existence and being of who God is in this relationship of Father and Son is one of love. God is love. It's this eternal dance of love, Father, Son, and Spirit. And out of that love, they create a world. So they can love this world and so that their creation can flourish in love. 
And even though sin has marred our world, God continues to work to bring us back to himself, to reconcile us to himself so that we might flourish in the reality of being loved. And he tells us where his whole story is going. Revelation 21, when he says, I am making all things new. The reality of the new heavens and new earth, the reality of our future, our destiny, where we are going is a world that is removed, not only from the penalty of sin so that we're forgiven, but also from the power and even the presence of sin's effects so that we might be awash on every side by the love of God. We might be swept up into this life. Um, the New Testament goes on, and, and I've talked about this before. I talked about it in the sermon on baptism a couple weeks ago. Apostle Paul, especially, makes a lot about the idea of being in Christ. We place our faith in Jesus. We are counted in Christ. And the idea here is that we are no longer just considered in ourselves. That by faith we're joined to Jesus. And so Jesus has talked here about this union that he has with the Father. This union that goes to the very essence of who they are. And I've spoken about how uh, the eternal God takes to himself a human nature. And so reconciles humanity and divinity in his person. When we're joined to Jesus by faith, all that's his by right becomes ours by grace. So our standing in the midst of God's presence is not one that we fear maybe condemnation. Jesus has been received because he's Jesus. We're counted in Jesus. And so our status now and forever is righteous in God's sight, holy and blameless. And God is transforming us now to make us in our lived experience who we already are in his sight. So that we might not just be righteous in his sight, but that we might be people who do righteous deeds as well. This union of Father and Son spills out and we're invited by faith to come in and find ourselves united to Jesus by faith. Now, that doesn't mean we become divine. I'm not saying that. We don't like ascend to Godhood or whatever. That's not, that's not what's awaiting you or me. We always remain human beings. But in being joined to God as our source of life, being united to God and Jesus, in love, we participate and are swept up into this life of God. It becomes the air we breathe. It becomes our home. It becomes our source of life. The God who is life. Meaning this, friends, our source of vitality and strength, our source of worthiness, our identity is rooted in one whose life is love. And it can't run dry because it's the eternal God. It cannot run dry. Now, it's important that we realize this, otherwise we might misread, as I'm coming to a close here, verse 29. It says in verse 29 that those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Now, this certainly sounds like we're being judged according to our works, right? People who do the right things will rise to life. One who do the wrong will rise to condemnation. But what Jesus is saying here... Um, gets explained, I think, a little bit better in chapter 6, or next chapter in the Gospel of John. I don't have it printed for us, but uh, chapter 6, verse 28. There's a crowd listening to Jesus teach, and he said something similar to what he says here, and they cry out, what must we do to do the work 
that God requires? What must we do? What is the work that God requires? And Jesus answers this. The work of God is this, to believe in the one He has sent. The work of God is this, to believe in the one that He has sent. In other words, we are justified in God's sight. We are raised to live because we have rested in the grace of God in Christ. We stop striving to prove ourselves before God and others and we rest in the righteousness of Jesus given to us by faith. And that fundamental righteousness is ours by faith in Jesus and becomes the root from which all good works spring. Sin is defeated, death is overcome, the victory of Jesus is assured, and it's all grace given to us because we've been joined and united to Jesus. The night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed a prayer for his disciples. It's actually recorded for us if you want to read it. It's in John chapter 17. And it's a prayer that wasn't just for his disciples that were with him at the time. He also included us specifically in his language. And in his words to the Father, he prays that we would find a union, not just with him, but with one another. This is where I want to leave us with this thought. Because the union that exists eternally between the Father and the Son, that spills out to include us in our inclusion in Jesus, this union with Jesus, spills out to include a union with one another, with those of us who are in God's kingdom, so that we are not uh, islands. We're not just a bunch of individual people who happen to be in the same room and happen to be uh, believing the same things. No, there's, some, there's a powerful grace that happens when we come to Jesus and that we're joined to this family. And our destinies get wrapped up in each other. The things that keep you up at night are meant to keep me up your victories become my victories. And we struggle together and we celebrate together. And the world sees this incredible love that begins to build and grow like a garden, grows with plants in the church. So I want to leave you with these words, the prayer of Jesus from John 17. My prayer is not for them alone, his disciples gathered there. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, and the world will know that you have sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. May God grant us this unity with one another, this union not just of uh, a mission, like a church plan, but a union rooted in the eternal love of God that will show the world that God is us, that all may come to find His grace. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You have shown us who You are so clearly in Jesus Christ. And now we are baffled by this grace and it it extends our ability to describe it in human language, but that you show us in the radiance and the shining forth of that glory, your love. So I pray that our hearts will be captured by this vision of you, the God who is love, that we would find and rest in you, find our identity, our worthiness, our sense of vitality and strength in you, and that you, by your spirit, would unite us to one another, create in our church a home, a place for one another. Create in our church a family, Lord, united by love that bears with one another, that prays for and with one another. 
And through that incredible union of love that comes to be and matures and grows, expand that circle out, Lord. Bring more people in that your love may be evident in this place, in this city, in this state, in this world. Proud is in the name of Jesus.